back in Matthew 5 this morning. We're going to focus our attention on verses 23 through 26. I'm going to begin reading at verse 20 and, and read through verse 26. And then we'll pray. <clears throat> Beginning in Matthew 5, chapter 20, we read, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then we see he begins to describe, contrast, the kind of righteousness they were about with genuine righteousness. And he begins in verse 21 by saying, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, meaning worthless one or empty-headed one, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of the fire or hellfire. And we looked at that last week and saw what he was talking about there, how anger can lead to terrible thoughts and words. It's also deeds. Sinful anger if left unchecked. And then we see in verse 23, uh, it begins with therefore, or so then. That is, what he's about to say is, as a consequence of what I just told you, let me tell you these things. So he's got sinful anger and the problems that it can raise in mind and the importance of dealing with that in mind in what he's going to say in verses 23 through 26. So these verses are also, in some way, talking about the problem of sinful anger. We have to keep that in mind as we read them. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge you hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you'll by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So what do these things have to do with anger? (laughs) Well, you can imagine in both situations that anger would be involved, right? If someone has something against you, they're liable to be angry at you. And if somebody's taking you to court... Both of you are liable to be angry at each other, right? So if we stop to think about it, we can see why he would use these examples. And we'll focus our attention on trying to grasp a little bit more about them this morning. First, let's pray and ask for the Lord's guidance. Holy Father, we do thank you for your great love. And that because you loved us, you gave your one and only son to be the wrath-ending sacrifice for our sins. You've given us such a wonderful Savior in Jesus Christ who was born of the Virgin Mary and lived a sinless life and died as the sinless sacrifice for our sins on the cross where you poured out your wrath on him so that those of us who trust in him would never face your wrath but instead have your grace. Everlasting life through faith in Christ who after he died, rose from the dead and conquered death on our behalf and ascended to your right hand where he ever lives to intercede for us. All of this 
is your love for us and much, much more besides. And we cannot thank you enough for such a wonderful Savior as our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we come to your word this morning wanting to hear what he has to say to us, what our Messiah, our Lord, wants us to know. We want to learn the lessons he would have us learn. And we know that we need the filling of your Holy Spirit. We know that we need the wisdom, the insight, the illumination of your Spirit, or we will not properly understand what you wish us to receive from this text this morning. So we ask that you would grant us a renewed filling of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with a zeal to love you and love one another, that you would fill us with the fruit of the Spirit, that you would grant us your wisdom, and that we would receive what you want to say to us and become, as a result, more like Christ. We ask these things for your glory, as always, and for our good, and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hopefully you're already remembering well what we discussed last week as we examined the first of what are called six antitheses, right? Beginning in verse 21 and continuing throughout chapter 5. And each of these are called an antithesis because they all have a statement like this. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And so Jesus sets up the way that the scribes and Pharisees tended to teach with proper teaching in which he brings the whole counsel of God to bear uh, on the particular issue with which he's dealing. And as we saw last week, and we're reminded in our reading of the text this morning, the first of these antitheses was about sinful anger. Of course, we spent time last week talking about the fact that there is a a righteous anger. Uh, But Jesus was clearly dealing with sinful anger. And he's still dealing with sinful anger as we approach the verses that we're going to look at this morning in verses 23 through 26. In fact, I, I think that Jesus is giving us uh, examples of how to deal with situations in which sinful anger often tends to prevail. He picks a couple of situations with which his hearers would be familiar in order, I think, to illustrate for them how anger should be dealt with in situations in which it commonly arises. And as we look into these examples, we're going to see that, first of all, we must not allow anger to corrupt our worship. We must not allow anger to corrupt our worship. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. We must not allow anger to corrupt our dealings with others. So we must not allow anger to corrupt our worship. And secondly, we must not allow anger to corrupt our dealings with others. So that first one is not allowing anger to corrupt our worship. And we see this in verses 23 through 24, in which our Lord Jesus uses the example of temple worship. Of course, the temple was standing still when Jesus said these things, and I think when also it was still standing when Matthew wrote this gospel. Um, But he says in verse 23 through 24, therefore, and we've noted the importance of that word already, that tells us that Jesus is carrying on his theme of dealing with sinful anger, right? Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, 
Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There's a couple of things I want to highlight here. First, notice how Jesus is just as concerned that we do not cause others to carry a grudge against us as he has been that we ourselves do not carry a grudge against others. His teaching on anger seemed to be focused in the preceding verses on dealing with anger in yourself. Now he's shifting. What about anger toward us? He wants us to be just as concerned about that as we are about the anger we might have. Concerned enough to seek to do something about it, if, if possible. He's already warned us about the danger of sinful anger and the terrible things that might lead us to do and say and how we might mistreat people. But he doesn't want us to forget that our brothers, being an inclusive term, including brothers and sisters, that our brothers struggle with anger as well. And we should care about that. And this is another way of just saying you can't love God without loving other people. This is intertwined throughout all the biblical teaching about love. People who say they love God and they don't love their brother, what would the Apostle John tell us? That person's a liar and the truth is not in him. Well, that's the principle in operation here, right? I think Daniel Doriani, who's written a really good commentary on Matthew, is correct when he writes that one might expect Jesus to say, as he does later in Mark eleven twenty five, if you are offering your gift at the altar and therefore remember that you have something against your brother. But that's not what he says. You would have kind of expected him to say that after what he's just said about anger. But instead, Jesus demands more. He says, so, or therefore, if your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go. The word so or therefore means that Jesus is drawing a conclusion from his prior statements. If one refrains from murder, anger, and contempt, then one should also prevent it in others if possible. If a man remembers an angry brother while offering a gift on the altar, a place at which men celebrate peace and favor with God, then he should seek peace and favor with his brothers. I think Doriani has hit the nail on the head. And his words also lead us to another important observation here about these verses. Secondly, notice that our relationship to others, and I've already highlighted this, but I want to zero in on it more. Our relationship to others affects our relationship to God. We cannot rightly worship God and commune with him if we have unresolved conflict with others. So, if we know that a brother has something against us, we should seek to make it right immediately even if that means that we forego worship until we have first endeavored to be reconciled with our brother, and even if that entails great effort on our part. Because that's what Jesus is describing here. I think R.T. France, in his commentary, is on track when he writes this. The only altar at which an offering could be made was that of the temple in Jerusalem. This saying here in the text, presumably uttered in Galilee, where Jesus had been prior to this teaching, Thus envisages, it's a hard word for me to say, pictures a worshiper 
who has traveled some 80 miles to Jerusalem with his offering, probably a sacrificial animal, who then leaves the animal in the temple when he makes a journey of a week or more to Galilee and back again in order to effect a reconciliation with his offended brother or sister before he dares to present his offering. This, the improbability, he writes, of the scenario emphasizes Jesus' point that the importance of right relationships demands decisive action. Um, some people think there might be a little hyperbole here. Is somebody really going to make that kind of a trip? Well, the point of this teaching is you ought to be willing to do that. You ought to see this is that important, right? Many people go to worship and have conflict with other people and, and come to church and don't think twice about it. It's like it doesn't matter to them at all. Well, if dealing with sinful anger matters to them, then being reconciled to a brother or sister who's angry with you ought to matter with, to, to them, right? If they come and say, I love you, God, but don't love their brother or sister enough to help them not hang on to their anger, right? Then do, how much do they really love God? How sincere is their worship really then? These are the points that Jesus is trying to make here. Now, we, of course, no longer need to travel to Jerusalem to present an offering on the altar, uh, even if such an altar still existed, which it doesn't. But as we've seen in our previous study, the purpose for that altar has already been fulfilled by our Lord Jesus. Remember, we talked about ways in which Jesus fulfilled the law. And there was this Old Testament sacrificial system that pointed to Christ and found its fulfillment in him. He's the ultimate sacrifice. Once for all for sinners. And there's no need for any other sacrifices. So even if the altar were still there, it would be useless and pointless. Except as a reminder that Christ was the fulfillment of of the purpose of that altar. We've also seen in our previous studies that we're already part of the kingdom of heaven, and as such, we're already citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, of which the earthly Jerusalem was but a type. We know from the book of Revelation, one day the heavenly Jerusalem will descend to earth when there's a new heaven and a new earth. And we're already citizens of that heavenly Jerusalem. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the author of Hebrews so powerfully reminds us in Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 24, as believers in Christ, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And of course, for those of us who forget, uh, remember Abel's blood cried out to God for vengeance when Cain slew him. Why does Jesus' blood speak better things than the blood of Abel? Because his blood does not cry out for vengeance on us. It cries out for mercy toward us. But notice what he said here. When we are 
members of the body of Christ, and when we come together to worship, we're really just joining in with the worship that's already happening in heaven, in the heavenly Jerusalem, where all these angels are praising God, and the spirits of the just men made perfect. Those who have gone before us, awaiting the resurrection, right? They are praising God. We're just joining in with that. That's what we were doing when we were singing here this morning. As citizens of the heaven heavenly Jerusalem. And the only sacrifices we make then, metaphorically speaking, are stated later in in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 13, verses 14 through 16, we read this. Hebrews 13, verses 14 through 16. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. The heavenly Jerusalem, remember that we're already, in a sense, citizens of, but will come to earth one day. Therefore, by him, that is by Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So we come to offer a sacrifice when we come to worship, but not on an altar. We come to praise God that the purpose for that altar has been fulfilled in Christ, the wrath-ending sacrifice for our sins, through whom we are saved. And the sacrifice we offer is praise and thanksgiving. That that purpose has been fulfilled. And he goes on to say, but do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, he uses that word again, God is well pleased. So what are the sacrifices we offer to God? We don't bring an animal to an altar or grain or something like that. We praise the Lord and we do good to others, and we share. That's another way of saying we love God and we love other people. That's what we do. And that's what God's people should always have been doing, right? But such sacrifices of praise and of doing good and of sharing are unacceptable to God if we perform them while knowing that a brother has something against us. So we must not allow sinful anger to hinder our relationship with God and our service to him, whether the anger is in ourselves or in others, right? And you notice that Jesus doesn't say whether that person's anger to you is right or wrong anger, whether or not you did something wrong to them or not. He doesn't seem to be concerned about that. Something still needs to be done about it. (laughs) That might be trying to explain to the person that they're wrong and to be angry at you, or it might be just repenting of what you've done wrong to them and seeking forgiveness. But what if a brother will not be reconciled to us? What if our brother refuses to be reconciled to us? What if after trying to clear up any wrongful anger on his part or her part, and after seeking forgiveness for anything we might have done, that produced a righteous anger in him or her, that brother or sister refuses to be reconciled to us. We've either tried to say, you shouldn't be angry at me. You've misunderstood. Or or if they are angry, I'm sorry and truly repent and seek forgiveness. What if that person says, no, I'm right and you're wrong, even if we know we're not. Or if that person says, well, I won't receive your repentance and I won't forgive you. What then? Well, our Lord Jesus doesn't deal with that issue here. But elsewhere, he acknowledges that others may refuse to be reasonable or, or forgiving toward us. 
I think of the parable of the unforgiving servant later in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 20, or 35, rather. He tells a story about an unforgiving servant and says we shouldn't be that way, right? Jesus knows that sometimes people will refuse, you know, they'll refuse to listen to you. They'll refuse to forgive you, even if you tried your best to make things right. Well, Jesus wouldn't hold us accountable in such a situation, would he? He would instead have us do as the apostles Paul said to the Roman believers in Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. But he knows full well that it's not always possible. He knows that. But the point is that we still need to make the effort. If we love God and we love our brother, we're going to make that effort. And Jesus says that should be important to us. Because when we come to worship God, we're coming to worship a God who cares about that brother. As much as he cares about us. And he wants us to care about that brother. So the important thing is that we actually seek to do our best. I think there's probably not a person in this room, I would guess, because it... I've been living on this planet long enough to know that it's hard to get through life, even for a short time, without having somebody in your life that's angry at you without a cause or refuses to forgive you. We probably all have somebody like that in our lives. Some of us have many people like that in our lives. That doesn't mean we can't come to sincerely worship God unless we haven't cared one whit about making any of those things right. And then we're just coming to worship with hearts full of hypocrisy. God sees right through that. We can fool ourselves, but we can never fool him. So the fact that people in your life might be angry with you does not mean that you can't come to worship God sincerely and genuinely. Very often, there's nothing you can do about it. The question is, have you tried to do something about it? Or not. All you can do is what you can do. So it's just important that we seek by God's grace to ensure that we deal with sinful anger in our midst and thus prevent any impediment, not only to our relationship with God, but to a brother or sister's relationship with God, because we love them. And this leads us to our next point, uh, which has already kind of been in the first one but we'll focus a little bit more on it now. We must not allow anger to corrupt our dealings with others. And we see this in verses 25 and 26. We must not allow anger to corrupt our dealings with others. And Jesus in verses 25 and 26 uses an example here instead of a religious situation, legal action. This is what it says again in verses 25 and 26. Agree with your adversary quickly. The word could actually be taken, as some translation have it, is make friends with. The idea is you're trying to ease things with this person and and create a friendly tone, a tone of uh, reconciliation with the person, right? Agree with or try to be friends with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him. Lest your adversary, which here would apparently be an opponent in a lawsuit, because he says, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, 
and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, our Lord Jesus here is giving us an illustration in which he has envisioned a situation where two men are on their way to see a judge. There's been conflict between them of some kind. And in this case, it seems to be uh, a creditor and a debtor. One of the men is a creditor and the other is a debtor because he, Jesus says that the result will have to pay the last penny. So apparently money's involved and the, the, the person who needs to try to straighten things out owes something to the other person. So there's a creditor and there's a debtor. And in the illustration, the believer is represented by the debtor who, if he does not find a way to reach an agreement before getting to court, may find that things go against him and that he ends up in a debtor's prison. That's the idea. You're going to get thrown into prison until everything's paid. And that's going to hurt your family, too. The point is that the debtor can either find a way to reach a friendly agreement with the creditor before he reaches the judge. That would be the smart thing to do. Or he can end up in a much worse situation in which he'll still have to pay, but he will suffer a great deal in the process. The debtor can seek to appease the anger of his creditor while also letting go of his own anger, right? Or he can face the, potential, the potentially dire consequences of his failure to be, let's say, more conciliatory. I think Daniel Doriani is, again, quite helpful when he summarizes our Lord's teaching this way. He writes, the final scenario in verses 25 and 26 is most challenging, Heretofore, Jesus has described anger, disdain, and tension with a brother, whether family, neighbor, or fellow believer. Now Jesus commands reconciliation with an adversary, a legal opponent. Again, Jesus ignores the question of who's in the right. The clash itself is his concern. Jesus pictures a foe taking a disciple to court for financial reasons. No one goes to court lightly, he writes. A problem has escalated. Tensions are high, and no one knows how the case will end. A man, perhaps convinced of his rectitude, is hardly inclined to back down, so Jesus commands uh, counter every proud instinct that we have. Come to terms or make friends quickly. While opportunity remains, even on the way to the court, lest the judge rule against you and send you to prison. At one level, writes Doriani, this is a shrewd advice. Take action to prevent catastrophic loss. More profoundly, Jesus tells disciples to lay aside wrath and pride and make peace. If a disciple can lay aside his anger, he should be able to make peace with foes, even in legal battles that seem unjust. I think he's getting to the heart of what Jesus is probably dealing with here. Remember, because the focus of all this is anger still and situations in which anger tends to be rife. Um, my wife is part of a lawsuit. Most of you don't know that, actually. She had ovarian cancer, and there's no doubt that she got it through talcum powder. Right? And so there's this big lawsuit against Johnson & Johnson, and she's a party to that. And it's pretty easy if you think about what they've done when they knew this was causing problems, to be angry with them. 
Well, we can't deal with those people. We don't know any of those people, right? We can't find them and go and try to be reconciled in person with them over what's happened. What we can do is forgive them in our hearts and ask God to forgive them and ask God to send someone with the gospel to these people and not carry a grudge. Still sue them, though. Why? Not, not just out of vengeance, mind you, but because they've done this to a lot of people and they need to stop. Somebody needs to stop them, right? So sometimes lawsuits can be done, right, like this, and, and uh, that's an example from our own lives uh, where and who knows what's going to happen in the end, but we know the kind of anger that can, be, that can come up even against a faceless, nameless corporate entity where we don't know any single person involved. we got to deal with that anger, though. We can't let it affect us. It's probably harder for me because they did it to my wife. They knew for a long time that that stuff was hurting people. At any rate, with the basic ideals of this illustration in mind, then as I see it, there are at least two lessons to be drawn from what Jesus is saying. First, notice that Jesus wants us to be quick to resolve conflict even with our enemies or our adversaries. This tells me that Jesus wants us to be concerned about all of our relationships, not just with our brothers, as in in the previous example, but also with our enemies. And as we'll see later in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to talk about loving your enemies. And this is sort of anticipating that. In both cases, whether with a situation with a brother or an enemy, we're not to delay in seeking reconciliation, if at all possible. I gave an example from the life of Kim and I where it doesn't seem to be possible to find any one person to be reconciled with. So we just got to deal with things on our end, leave the rest to God and pray for whoever made these terrible decisions. And we'll probably never know who they were. Sometimes it's not possible because people won't listen, as we've said before. But we need to seek reconciliation and not delay. That's an emphasis of both examples. Don't delay. Even though it will not always be possible. And as I said said before, Jesus knows it won't always be possible. After all, not only does he later go on to give a parable about people who can be unforgiving and warn us about that, but he's already told his disciples in this very context to expect persecution even though they're seeking to be peacemakers. Remember what he said in the Beatitudes back in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, what he's describing here is how we're being peacemakers. He's giving examples of being peacemakers right here, right? Um, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Wait a minute. Why are we being persecuted if we're peacemakers? That, well, sometimes you're being persecuted precisely because you're a peacemaker. Blessed are all those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets 
were before you. You're in good company. So we need to be, seek to be peacemakers, and this means battling sinful anger, along with its results, both in ourselves and in others, whenever possible. Remembering what Paul said, as far as it, you know, it depends on us. We try to live at peace with all men. But we know we'll not always be successful. But we still must be faithful citizens of our heavenly country, right? Seeking to be peacemakers and leaving the rest to God. Praying for our adversaries. Hoping that God will save them. So that's the first lesson. Don't delay. Second, Notice also that failure to resolve conflict and to seek reconciliation as soon as we can will only lead to more trouble. Jesus' illustration, which alludes to a common type of event, as I said earlier in that culture, reminds us that we should never think that things will get better by themselves. We should, we should never let things fester, even though we're often tempted to do so. It's hard to deal with these kinds of situations, and it's easy to put them off. And the more we put them off, the easier it is to never do them. But notice what he said in the illustration. If you don't find a way to deal with this on the way to the judge, you can end up in prison, and you're not getting out of there until you pay the last penny. That's the experience of everybody he's talking to. What's the point of that? If you don't deal with things quickly, don't expect them to get better. Expect them to get worse for you. So there's also doing what's best for us involved here. We need to think of it that way, and best for other people around us as well. We've all seen what happens when things are left undealt with, haven't we? When there's anger that's not dealt with. Usually what ends up in a church, if there's somebody that gets mad, say, at the pastor or someone else in the church, and they don't deal with it properly, the fact that they didn't go talk to the person they're mad at doesn't mean they don't talk to somebody. It just means that they talk to the wrong person. They go talk to other people. And then they get those people mad with them or try to. Right? And then what you have is a gossip circle. And then there's a tension that starts to build in relationship with, with a group of people toward this person who doesn't understand why he or she is being viewed negatively all of a sudden and starts to talk to other people about it. What's wrong with those people over there? Why are they so mad at me? Next thing you know, you've got two factions now. All because one person refused to deal properly with his or her anger. I've seen it happen. It's not fun. (laughs) And it's a terrible thing to have to deal with. And And this is one of the weapons that Satan uses against the church. And this is why Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Because he says in Ephesians 4, if you do that, if you, if you let anger fester, you're given an opportunity to the devil. Anger doesn't, doesn't go away by itself. It has to be driven away. It's like a hungry wolf that looks, as you, looks at you as a bag of meat. And that starving wolf isn't going to go away. You've got to kill it. That's what anger is like. Remember what we looked at last week, the example of Cain, what God said to Cain. 
Sin lies at the door. What was the sin? Why are you angry with your brother, he said. Sin lies at the door in its desires for you, like an animal that was going to attack him. And what happened? He didn't deal properly with his anger, and he ended up killing his brother. We could do the same thing. If we think we're better than Cain, we got another thing coming. If we haven't fallen prey to such sins as the ones I've just described, it's only by the grace of God that we haven't. And how can we ensure in the future that we won't? Battle anger like the worst enemy, sinful anger, mind you, like the worst enemy in your midst. Kill it whenever you can. Slay it. Don't let it have any life. I'll just add in conclusion that that I'm glad that our Lord Jesus gave us a couple of examples here in order to help us think through and understand how his teaching might practically affect our lives in really important ways. In fact, his examples, both from religious life and from situations which might arise just from everyday business dealings, They remind us that sinful anger can be a problem in every aspect of our lives. Any aspect of your life in which you deal with other people is an opportunity for sinful anger. Just the way it is. Because every single person in this room is capable of sinful anger. Apart from the grace of God. We're also reminded by these, by these lessons of our Lord Jesus that life is really only about one thing. If you want to know what life is about, I'll tell you what life is about. Your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. That's it. Relationships. That's what life is about. When we stand before God, all that will matter is did I love God and did I love other people? And one of the biggest weapons that Satan has in destroying both is sinful anger that we don't deal with like we should. We give him an opportunity to come in and do his destructive work. Thankfully, though, We can count on God's grace and help, right? We can count on the power of the Holy Spirit in order to battle this constant enemy. None of us has to be a victim of sinful anger. And when we feel it arising in ourselves, none of us has to let it hang on and develop into a grudge. Every one of us, by the power of the Spirit, is capable, if we trust in God and seek his empowering presence, right? To enable us, every one of us, by the grace of God, is capable of defeating this enemy. And in the process, stomping on the head of Satan. We don't have to give in to this. We can have victory. Because we have the spirit of Christ. And because we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. There's nothing he can do that we don't already know about. There's like a top secret knowledge that God's given us in scripture about how to defeat our enemy. 
that if, if we do this, if we battle this way, if we trust God for this, in the process, we'll find that we're doing what? Exhibiting a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, of religious hypocrites who talk a good game, but they don't walk the walk. And we'll put them all to shame by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, I hope I've been helpful in, in, in drawing out the lessons of this passage, and the way they hit me anyway, and I can think back on my own life and the way anger was such a terrible thing for me, as, uh, pr- particularly before I came to Christ, how it just ruled my life. And I'm so glad to be set free from it. And I know that there are others in here who feel the same way. And perhaps there are some in here who have been struggling with anger and, and need to go deal with someone that you've brought to mind today that maybe they'd even forgotten about. But they, now they know they should make it right or they should at least try. Lord, we pray that you give them your strength to do so. And help them to know that because that's the true intent of their heart, as they sing this closing hymn today, they can do it in genuine worship because they've already purposed in their heart to do the right thing. Lord, uh, if there's anyone here who has not come to know you as his or her Savior and Lord, it's our prayer that he or she would today recognize that they cannot be saved from their sins apart from Christ, that they would trust fully in him and receive the free gift of everlasting life, forgiveness of their sins, and join us as citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. And join us in trying to learn how to better love you and each other. Because we're all still trying to learn that. We ask all these things for your glory. And once again for our good. And in the name of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well as always I thank you for your kind attention. You're such good hearers of the word you are.